This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Global Impact. Welcome back to EM Pulse. So today we're going to be talking about global health. Now, Julia, have you ever done any international work? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have actually. And I mentioned in our heartbeat half a day that I actually went into medicine because I wanted to work internationally. It all started when I was a high school student and I went to the mountains in Honduras and I visited a pediatric nutrition hospital and orphanage. That's where I really got inspired by seeing the care for these patients that were in abject poverty and that need really impacted me. It was why I decided to go to medical school. It literally changed my life trajectory. But in medical school, I went back to the mountains of Honduras, and this time to provide care at tables that were set up in a little school, patients lined up snaking around the building at like six o'clock in the morning to be seen by us medical students with our stethoscopes, limited Spanish, and a handful of vitamins. It was organized by a local physician as part of a greater organization, and I saw a ton of patients. But giving medicine for worms, taking vital signs, and doing a physical exam in a room with 50 people to make a diagnosis like hypertension and then send you home with a Ziploc baggie of a week's supply of antihypertensives did not settle well with me. This really left a bad taste in my mouth, seeing patients who walked for hours to see medical students and to be given really nothing of value. The main thing that I got out of that experience was I was not going to do that again. I still want to give back internationally, but I wanted to do it in a more meaningful way. So now I try to go to an established site and help out so that their providers can come back for a break or do something else with that free time they have while they know there is coverage or to fill in for a need that's temporary. Yeah, and I know you are not alone in having some positive and some negative experiences. I've had some myself. And there are a million bad stories out there of people going to Bora Bora to hand out vitamins for a day and then hang out on the beach and call it global health. <laughs> it's so true. That sounds more like medical tourism to me and somewhat fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, many physicians do work or volunteer outside the United States for more altruistic reasons, like for religious or humanitarian goals, to experience a new way of practicing medicine, to get a break from the challenges of working in the U.S. healthcare system, like to get away from our EMR, oh, for example, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or to experience a new culture or a new area firsthand and to immerse their kids in a foreign culture, just to name a few. Right. And since this is an emergency medicine podcast, most of us are thinking about global emergency medicine, which is basically emergency medicine taken globally. <laughs> we do it in three basic ways. Emergency medicine development as a specialty, specifically delivery of acute care in resource-limited settings, and disaster and humanitarian responses. A fourth way is others go to do a more public health approach to medicine internationally. Others go with more of a public health perspective, which is a fourth way. And since so many emergency physicians want to be a part of the bigger picture, there are actually full fellowships on this topic. But we can all make a difference, and we should be purposeful about how we do that. Our colleagues, Nate Cooperman, our department chair, and Christine Macbeth, who completed a global ultrasound fellowship, highlight some of these experiences. After my second year of pediatric residency, I was getting 
antsy because I was feeling like I was just a cog in the machinery of medicine in the United States, and I wanted to go make a difference somewhere. So I found this little clinic on the outskirts of Kathmandu, Nepal, that were advertising for a pediatrician. And even though I had just finished two years of my pediatric residency, they said that that would be fine. So this was in 1987, and I was the only Western pediatrician in all of Kathmandu, and I was working in a clinic that serves an indigent population of Tibetan refugees in Nepal. And it was just an incredible year for a number of reasons. First of all, medically, I thought that I was going to become an intensive care physician, but working out there with my hands, with limited technology, etc., I realized I really wanted to be an emergency physician because the skills and the tools that we have were quite amenable to international health. And I also realized that the biggest impact we can have is not just doing acute care, but really helping build infrastructure. And what I mean building infrastructure, educational systems, teaching algorithms, teaching people how to teach so that your impact could be long-lasting. So I spent most of a, a year there. I also felt like I became a member of the community, um, really learned to, to value global health because once you're part of a community, you see that we are all humans and we're all the same. And that really sort of reinforces a point that we all inherently know, but there's something about palpably being there and feeling that. And that was in 1987. And I have maintained a relationship with that same clinic. It still exists now. I've gone back many times uh, over the last 30 years. Most recently, a couple of years ago, there was a big earthquake in Nepal and I went to the same clinic and we rented out a, a big uh, Range Rover and we went to villages all around Kathmandu doing, doing acute disaster relief because most of the damage and morbidity and mortality were in the villages right around Kathmandu. It was just, you know, sort of unbelievable. We packed the clinic on the roof of the Range Rover with, you know, medications and bandages, whatnot. And in the Range Rover, there was me, two Nepali physicians, a couple of nurses, a pharmacist, a tech, and my daughter, who was my scribe. You know, there was not any acute resuscitation. People who died had died. But there were a lot of wound care, a lot of fractured care, infected wounds, and then a lot of severe manifestations of regular illness because people didn't have access to care. So bad pneumonias, bad skin infections. It was really dealing with the complications of wounds that had been inflicted uh, you know, five, six days previously. And we just went village to village for two weeks, and it was really uh, quite an incredible experience. It's just a good reminder that what we do in healthcare uh, is not just what we do locally. It's the impact that we have globally because humans are humans no matter where you are on the globe. When I was a fellow, I went to do a month in Laos at a pediatric hospital in Long Prabang. And um, what I thought I was doing when I was going there was to teach some ultrasound and work in the pediatric emergency department. When I got there, I was surprised to find out that I'd be staffing not only the emergency department, but the NICU, the PICU, and be a pediatric hospitalist. So it was a little bit of a surprise, um, but had to adapt and uh, really learn a lot. There was such a wide variety of cases, you know, infectious, trauma, kind of everything. And they are really great 
at managing a lot of problems that I wasn't super familiar with, like nephrotic syndrome, they see a lot of it there, or pyomyositis, but certain things like trauma, um, they have kind of less formalized training in. So we could do a lot with ultrasound and clinical care with that. So um, really wanted to help build their ultrasound program there was the main reason we went there. So they have an ultrasound machine that they use and they have ultrasound techs that are there certain parts of the day, but they don't have any radiologists there. So we really wanted to kind of emphasize the point of care ultrasound program where the clinicians can actually do the scans and interpret them themselves in real time to help make clinical decisions. It impacted me in, you know, personal and clinical ways. I think I learned a ton from seeing really sick children there. I mean, the volume of sick kids is just much more than we have here in the United States. So I learned a lot. But it also taught me about how hardworking, you know, the Latian people were and how much they're like really hungry for, you know, ultrasound training and continuing education. And it's just kind of inspiring to go work somewhere where people are so hungry for more information. Tell us what happened after you left. That wasn't the end, was it? One of the nutritionists, Dr. Sonia Hess from UC Davis at the undergrad campus, got a grant from the Gates Foundation to do um, a study about beriberi and kind of what the incidence and prevalence is there and how we can diagnose it better and make a big difference in pediatric outcomes. And part of the study is ultrasound diagnosis of beriberi and how that can impact um, outcomes for kids. So uh, what we did is went to Laos and taught local doctors how to do pediatric echo and cranial ultrasound to identify signs of beriberi. And so they're actually on the ground now doing scans on all of these kids that come into the emergency department and into the hospital to look for signs of beriberi. Then they upload the scans and a couple of us, Dr. Schick and Dr. Kelly and I review the scans on a weekly basis looking for those signs of beriberi. So the local physicians are treating them and when they're enrolled in the study, if they meet certain criteria, then they're getting um, kind of immediate administration of IV thiamine. There are so many stories and ways to make a meaningful impact. In fact, we are planning a mini series of international stories. So send us your own story. There is a possibility we will include it in that miniseries. You can submit it on the website ucdavisem.com or email it to us at empulsepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear your experiences as well. But what I really love about Nate and Christine's stories is that not only did they make a meaningful difference, but they came back as better, different physicians afterwards. So it's a two-way street. We should definitely be getting something out of it. We just have to make sure we are giving back in a way that makes sense locally. To make sure we're doing this smart, we have spoken with two of our own experts. So my academic appointment is Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis. I serve as the Director of Global Ultrasound there, and I'm the Director of Ultrasound for Global Emergency Care, which is an NGO that primarily works in Uganda. And then I'm also a strategic partner for the effort to strengthen emergency care in Belize. So uh, I'm Shakira Bandolin. So I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. And I'm the new director of global health within our department and also the new director of the Global Health Fellowship. 
So can you both briefly describe for us some of your work internationally and maybe one or two projects that you're proud of? I've done a variety of different projects over the years um, in all sorts of different fields. The ones that I'm part of now is we are trying to build up emergency medicine in southern Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City. And so we just put together a big proposal to work with the big trauma hospital down there, Cho Rai, to help them start an emergency medicine training certificate program. Um, and then outside of that, I do some public health work with an NGO outside of uh, the Sacred Valley in Peru, um, where we train community health workers, predominantly women, to go out into these communities in the high Andes where they're really isolated. And they basically serve as leaders for community health and basically their only access to care for a lot of these communities. Those are the main two ones that were kind of leading the way. Uh, it's pretty fun. A lot of the global health work I do in our department um, has been related to ultrasound and helping residents learn about global health as well. Uh, I wanted to create a program where our ultrasound fellows could become experts in teaching ultrasound in a global setting, a low-resource setting, and also learn how to use ultrasound in that setting as well. In my role for Director of Ultrasound for Global Emergency Care, I run a ultrasound program within a larger training program. And in general, that's the way I like to get involved with global health. I try to find partners um, abroad and within the United States and really get involved with long-term sustainable training programs. So in Uganda, Global Emergency Care started training these sort of mid-level providers, which we call emergency care practitioners. And they were the first ones to staff emergency departments in the country. And so before that, there was no one trained to staff emergency medicine at all. And I run just a small part of the program to two-year training program, which is just the ultrasound portion. So I travel every year there to teach them about ultrasound. And then longitudinally, I'm involved with quality assurance. In Belize, I've been involved in developing the entire emergency system. So I always teach ultrasound when I'm there, but I've been involved with training EMS providers, nurses, and emergency physicians. It's been a collaborative effort with Medical College of Wisconsin leading the way and Baylor taking a major role and then us at UC Davis as well. And this year they took their written and oral board exams in emergency medicine. So finally that specialty of emergency medicine will be established in the country. So very proud of that group that we've trained. How can we make a meaningful impact internationally? I think when you're looking at a project or looking um, how to get involved, you need to be really mindful about the organization first and sort of the, the setting in which you're going to work. When I'm looking at a project, I first ask where I'm going to teach or to help. Are they actually asking for the thing that I want to give them? Because what I can provide may not be appropriate in every setting. And I don't want to waste my time. And I certainly don't want to waste their time and give them some sort of resource they can't use. The second thing is they may ask for something, but then you need to ask yourself, is that actually going to be used in the way that you intend it to be used? So is it going to provide something good or is it going to provide something harmful or is it going to become totally useless? So I think that's where you start. And then I need to ask myself, do I have the bandwidth and time and the ability to really provide it in a responsible way? Like, can I give them a skill in this very short period of time? Or do I need to be involved there for years to make this actually happen? And if it needs to be years, but you can't provide that time, then you need to re totally reevaluate whether you can actually get involved there. I think trying to find community-driven initiatives is the most important. 
Partnering with other NGOs and organizations and academic centers is really important. Also, it happens very frequently, but it's also important to realize that every organization has some sort of other needs they're trying to fulfill, other commitments, and other intentions. And so really being honest with yourself and them and having conversations up front about like, why are we going? What is the point of going? And who's going to be served by this? It's not always the community. And sometimes it's some other initiative that people are trying to fulfill. Um, And so I think making sure that it's really community-driven and that they want it and that the needs are reasonable, that you can actually fill that, I think is probably the, the hardest thing to do, but also the most straightforward thing to do. Are there any specific things that we can look for when considering an organization to work with? One marker you can definitely look at is what's the ratio of people who are involved in working on this project in the country that you're going to go to versus your home? So if you have lots of people, like lots of physicians or whoever, who are sort of involved in something in the United States, but there's like two stakeholders in that sub-Saharan African country, that doesn't seem like a high impact thing and not a sustainable thing either. So I think that the country in which you're going to, where the project is, they should have many more stakeholders. They should be having a large ownership of the project itself. And so um, like for global emergency care, working in Uganda, we have like two employees we pay in the United States and then lots of Ugandan employees. And that's kind of how it should be. We have a lot of volunteers and we sort of live in this sort of high resource setting. And I think that we can sort of operate that way responsibly. And I think it's really hard to make any type of judgment based on an organization's mission. Like if you just look, go online and be like, oh, this mission really aligns with my values. I don't know that that's a great measure because so many organizations sort of have that out there. You really need to talk to someone who's been involved with the organization. If you have someone in that organization that's been there for a long period of time, they can actually retain people that keep going back and keep doing good work. That's a good measure to look for. Once you decide you want to work internationally, where do you even start? I think a lot really depends on what you want to do. And that's like the biggest challenge with global health is that's such a vague, broad term. And so it really depends on what you think that your time will allow, what your skill set is, and what your intentions are. And I think that that's one of those times where it's most important to have a reasonable conversation with yourself about why you want to be a part of this project. Like, for example, if you only have two weeks, and you know you want to provide clinical care, then there are plenty of organizations where you can plug in in a sustainable way and do that. And that is okay. Like not everyone can be a part of like 10-year strategic planning projects. The way that I would guide someone to start is first have that conversation with yourself and then decide if there's a place you want to be a part of or if there's an experience you want to be a part of more and start that way. It's overwhelming sometimes when people feel like they want to be involved, but even something as simple as like, donating is actually a really good way to be involved. You have to start with some self-reflection and decide like what your skill set is right now, what you can provide, and then what your restrictions are. Because like I have family, I have an academic appointment. I can't just like break off for a few months and work on a project. So you realistically need to look at that and then try to find some project that aligns with those restrictions and your skill set. When I wanted to get involved with Belize, I actually went to ASAP. American College of Emergency Physicians, they have ambassadors to almost every country. I just contacted the ambassador to Belize, who's Dr. Mark Bruce. And we've traveled for years now together. It's been six or seven years. We're great friends. He's been a great mentor. and He got me involved there. Um, For Uganda, we had a local physician in Sacramento where we work 
that just connected me with the organization because they they needed someone uh, in the role of an ultrasound director. And that's how I got involved there. So it's a lot of these sort of talking, finding mentors, making connections. But I think first, kind of knowing what you're looking for. You guys have been to some vastly different places around the world with these projects. Um, One of the challenges that I see, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit, is how do we provide culturally appropriate care in these different settings? Culture is complicated. If you imagine how we try to provide culturally appropriate care in our own setting, and we're not that good at it. We're still constantly learning how to do it. I have friends for years that I really superficially understand their culture. So to think you can go in and understand a completely different culture and a completely different health system is very naive. I think you just need to go in and start from a place of humility and respect and patience. And if you can do that and just ask a lot of questions, you'll learn a great deal. And if you keep returning to a place, you'll finally figure out how the system and the culture works. You definitely need allies. You need someone that you feel comfortable with uh, asking questions. And you should learn as much as you can before you get there. At least understand what the taboos of a culture are before you arrive there. That is the biggest challenge for sure. And when you're talking about culturally appropriate care, I think it goes back to finding the communities and learning about the communities. One other way that you do this is by going through like a standardized track where projects are sort of provided to you in a way that's organized so that you kind of learn what's culturally appropriate and what community wants and what it means to do a needs assessment. I spent years finding projects and jumping in with communities and sometimes they worked and a lot of times they failed. And I think what really ended up boiling down to was it is really hard to get an full assessment of what a community really wants and how to provide care to them that's not like egocentric and driven by our own values unless you have a champion in that community. And I think a good example of that is like our project in Vietnam. Actually, I've been a part of this project for like five or six years. It probably took three or four years to actually find a community advocate who was consistent and had the bandwidth to really like be a liaison from us. And then once we did, the project worked and everything became much more successful. So I think the answer to your question is how to provide culturally appropriate care is really based on learning and understanding that you actually probably don't know. So you need to find someone else who does because it's very hard to do that. In the era of global warming, is there something that we can do that's better if we don't have time for this long-term sustainable project? I think that's a complicated question and answer because there is a lot of value about being present in a culture. And so I would never want to discount someone's experience because even if you were to go on a very short trip, like we talk about mission trips all the time, I do think that that has provided so many people with a starting place to realize what the problems are with it, what they enjoyed about it, the challenges. And it's a huge learning opportunity, but it's sometimes hard to do that in a responsible way because we consume a lot of resources when we're there. So I do think that this is going going back to like having that self-reflective conversation is what's the goal? Or more importantly, I think if you have a bad experience, being able to reflect on it. You go on this experience and after the fact, you realize like, oh, that didn't feel very good. There's probably a better way to use my time. So before I go on a trip like this, I try to ask myself, am I a unique resource that they need there? And sometimes the answer is no. And now with so much technology, maybe you need to provide a lecture that someone can watch online or do a like teleconference 
or plug into an organization and support them. There are times though where you have a unique skill set or you're excited about a place and they need people. And in that case, I would definitely encourage you to go at least once. You gain so much from being present. So I think it's a balancing act. Climate change certainly touches on global health in many respects, but it's a massive problem that even though our personal choices matter, it's not really going to be changed by an individual flight going back and forth. These are macro problems where we need change at a large political level. If we're going into a country and we're involved in the sustainable education program or training program, we're not just delivering medical care, we're touching lives in a way that makes differences on an economic level, on a societal level there, like we're providing jobs for people by giving them training. We're providing better health, which allows them to participate in the economy. And all those things are positive for climate change. If we really want to help with climate change, then we need to get involved on a more macro level. I will say, though, I do think that having the conversation with yourself every single time you go on a trip was, was that worth it? What, what did I like give and what did I gain from that? And it really ideally should be a pretty good balance where you feel like you provided just as much as you took away. But I think it's something that with how much we do this and over the course of a lifetime, that is actually a pretty big impact and a big amount of resources. So I think bringing it up and talking about it is really important. Mike, your work to establish emergency medicine as a specialty in Belize is amazing. And I know some of it has been done without actually flying over there. Tell me about that. The project to strengthen emergency medicine in Belize, I mean, that's been years in the making, multiple stakeholders, training for at every level. And some of these physicians we've trained are finally coming through and will be sort of specialty recognized in Belize. In order to prepare them, though, we had to do a lot of test prep. Belize is unique in that there's no medical school. There's no residency training programs there. And so the physicians that work and staff the emergency departments throughout the entire country have done an internship, and they're generalists. And so before we came in, there was no specialty training at all. They've never taken tests that are over 100 questions. They've never taken anything close to an oral board exam. It's all new to them. And so in preparation for that, we have set up multiple physicians that have been working via Skype or FaceTime, whatever they want to choose to just go over oral board cases. We've had a lot of help um, from multiple institutions. It's taken a lot of work. All the trainees passed their written exam and a percentage of them passed the oral exam. So we're actually still working with them, trying to get everyone else to pass the second exam. How can medical providers physically prepare for a trip? The simplest things are making sure you're healthy and making sure that you have an understanding of what you're getting into. Vaccinations, you know, do you have your own health under check? So for example, I have been on multiple trips where we've been at high altitude. Uh, The most recent example was in like the Himalayas in India. And there was multiple medical providers on that trip who did not bring like acetazolamide or medications out without sickness. They were physically unprepared, had not really camped, backpacked, hiked before, and had never been at altitude. And those are situations where really need to have a better understanding and some insight into yourself. Because if you show up at a place and get sick, suddenly you are a consumer of all of the resources that you are trying to help and provide. This is, again, one of those things where really getting a sense of what are you getting into and why are you going on this trip? And how do you mentally prepare for a trip? 
I think for mental fortitude, if you're someone that needs like their your own bed and your own pillow all the time, then yes, you're going to have problems when you do any type of global work because the work is hard, it's long, and it takes a whole nother level of patience because you're crossing language and cultural barriers that you've never done before. And things that normally take you 15 minutes are going to take you two hours. You will encounter not just low resources and the frustration associated with low resources. There'll be a whole set of ethical issues that will be frustrating and also a lot more death than you're used to. And if you're not used to encountering death at really every age bracket for every type of reason, it will take a toll on you. So I think you need to sort of think about that and mentally prepare for it and certainly debrief about that when you return from the trips because your longevity in this type of work will depend on that. Pulse check. Be purposeful. Ask yourself, what are your goals? What are the goals of the organization? Do they match? There's not just one way to approach this, and we all learn from the process, so be ready to be flexible. Whatever you do should be grounded in the local needs, not your own desires. Plan well, prep physically and mentally. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast if you want to hear what is the one thing that Mike and Shakira always take with them when they travel. I love packing tips. (laughs) Another tip is that ASAP and Emra have developed some amazing resources for those of us who have not done a fellowship, including a nuts and bolts PDF and textbooks. There are also several free online courses. We have links to those in the show notes. And we want to hear from you. Tell us your global health story. It might even make it on our miniseries. So let us know on social media at Impulse Podcast and pass the word along to your friends and colleagues. We so appreciate those of you who have rated us and left us reviews on iTunes because it helps others find us. Register now for the 43rd annual UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference. It's going on February 24 to 29 at the Ritz-Carlton at Lake Tahoe. I will be there. And thank you to our department for your global health perspectives and supporting those of us who travel. Thank you to OM Audio Productions for being willing to do this podcast anywhere, including internationally. Watch out for our International Stories miniseries that'll be coming up soon. See y'all next time. What's the one thing that you always have in your bag when you guys are traveling on these international trips? All right, I'm not going to limit it to one thing, maybe, because <laughs> uh, that's too easy. So I, I travel with ultrasound, okay, so that's my one thing. But um, if I had to pick one sort of medical thing, it would be an EpiPen, right? Anytime you go on a trip and you're in an austere place, probably want an EpiPen because it's like one thing that could actually help someone or if you have like an allergic reaction. Um, And then I have like an excellent tactical flashlight. And I think that is so key because we go places where the electricity is so variable, it's on and off, and I use it all the time. So the two things that I would say have saved me multiple times. So one, an amazing portable charger that can charge all of your devices and protect you from power surges is so important. This has happened so many times where people plug their things into the wall and you get a power surge and suddenly your Apple computer is now gone. Outside of that, I always bring fancy chocolates with me. And this sounds really funny, but the caveat is it has to be stored properly. 
because of course like messy melted chocolate is going to ruin a lot of things in your bag but the reason is if so one I love chocolate it's great to have it it's like a little like comfort thing from home but also a lot of times when we travel people will bring you presents and you'll be meeting people who are from a variety of like places in the government or in hospitals and it saved us multiple times where you suddenly are in that situation where everyone has brought gifts except for you or your team so I always bring like a handful of chocolates with me too. 